Welcome to Behind the Scenes with Brian, the podcast covering everything from engineering, mining, and mine waste management to whatever else may be on our minds. Pop in your headphones and don't forget to rate, subscribe, and share. And now, here is your host, Brian Ulrich. Hey everyone, this is Brian and this is Behind the Scenes with Brian and today I am joined by uh, my guest, Heaven Evans. Heaven, how are you? Hey Brian, good morning. Very good, thank you. Oh, yeah. Good, and it's uh, quite early your time. I think you're in Brisbane, is that right? That's right, Brisbane, Queensland, Australia. Yeah, one, uh, of my, one of my favorite places in the world. Yes, please, please come back soon once we open the borders. Yeah. Come back. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, yeah. Heaven, tell, tell us a little bit about yourself. All right. So um, I was born in Wales on a dairy farm. Uh, we had uh, a bit less than 100 cows. And um, I'm a Welsh speaker, so Dinshala Camrag. And uh, my name um, is a Welsh name. And it, it means, it sort of translates roughly to the word summary, like nice weather, uh, which is very apt for Queensland, where I've ended up. Um, I studied electronics engineering at school and uh, through uni in uh, Swans University in West Wales and uh, shortly after ended up in Cambridge uh, which is a bit north of London for your yeah. if you don't know yeah it's um beautiful beautiful uh, college or university city and uh, there I worked for a company um called Sagentia I think they're now called something slightly different but that that's essentially where I was um forged that that was that was the hammer that shaped me mm -hmm. and uh, mm -hmm. there's a technology development consultancy so you, you come to them and say oh we've got this wonderful bit of biology um but we need a machine that moves some blood around uh, and it, it has to be within this temperature of 0.02 degrees and so on and so on you know sort of you can imagine these testing machines are very much like the stuff they're using today for uh, you know testing covid and uh, we, we would be the technologist who would who would uh turn their um, little tiny uh, segment of the, you know, the, the most crucial um, discovery or invention, we turn that into a machine, into a product. And so I started out there just, um, you know, worked my way up from testing to um, designing to leading teams. And um, yeah, eventually after seeing a fair bit of the world industry-wise and, and a fair bit of travel with that company, um, I moved on. So at, at Sagentia, we did, um, Honestly, I did it's the craziest stuff, sort of glass irons, uh, glass toasters with the glasses heating the toast. Um, <clears throat> I did some oil seismic array stuff, uh, surgical robots, um, electrosurgical devices, a lot of medical stuff. And I'd say that a lot of my engineering due diligence type stuff comes from my medical device development background because of the, you know, the safety aspect of um, medical devices. Yeah, yeah, interesting, interesting. And, and um, go on. And what drove you to where you are now? Yeah, so I met um, I met my wife uh, in uh, the local rowing club. So we, we were into fine river rowing hmm. at the time. We'd be both been doing that for about ten years, and um, and she she I guess we, we got married, had some kids, bought a house. And she'd been in the UK for about 11 years, and she's originally from Queensland. 
and uh, she had a particular family event and it meant that we wanted to move to Brisbane to spend more time with the family. And so with our two month year old daughter and uh, I think at the time a two year old son, we we got on the plane and came over to Queensland. And we've been very lucky to have support from the family, um, you know, to, to get set up here. Yeah. And, you know, we did that stuff where you live with the family for a few months, then you buy a house and you mm-hmm. get getting jobs. And um, we both really, we settled down. So I'm um, coming to Brisbane, um, the technology industry is it's obviously very different to Cambridge. And there's a big focus on industry here, and that could be construction and mining. And I'd say that Brisbane itself is one of the, well, probably is the the leader in um, technology development for mining in Australia. Okay. And so it's pretty hard not to end up in a job related to mining. Um, Yeah, yeah, right. And so I landed a a job um, as an engineering manager for a company called Alexon. They're a small group of companies, and one of the groups is called um, Electron Mining, and they're a geotechnical monitoring solutions company. So I've now got a team of 16 uh, software electronics and mechanical engineers, and then there's another team of operational engineers, uh, staff who do analysis of data, you know, goods shipping, dispatch, and so on. But we're about 50 in total in our little division, and then we've got a little manufacturing site directly attached to us and they do all of the electronic um, manufacture. So, you know, we've actually got manufacture in Queensland, which is a rarity these days. Um, every, everything's made right there. I can walk out and make a change, you know, in a few days. And uh, if there's any feedback, they come rushing to my desk. You know. Oh, great, so great. It's, so it's, that's, uh, that's me. And so that's how I got into mining. And I must admit, I'm fairly green to the mining industry. Mm-hmm. Um, what I'm, I'm mainly trying to uh, you know, straighten up the engineering side of the business. But um, I'm getting to the point now where I need to start understanding more. And um, and there was a, a local, uh, one of our professors in the UQ University who you actually interviewed recently, uh, David Williams. Yeah. We got in, we got in touch with him the other week and we were talking and I, and I, from his LinkedIn page, I saw your podcast and that's how, oh. that's how we, that's how we meet. Okay. Yeah. 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 He's a he's an interesting person for sure. He's a character. He's yeah. a real chatterbox. And um, <laughs> I spent quite a few uh, hours with him in the last week, ending up with a brewery on Friday. So we're getting somewhere. Oh, that's great. Um, where that that where that story, I guess, why why that is is because we we as Alexa Mining we know that. Whilst we may have a lot of good ideas, really all of our innovation is industry-led. So what we're looking for is problems in the industry. And we're saying, you know, solving them is not the hardest thing for us, it's finding the problems in the first place. Yeah. 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 So you have wireless in-ground geotechnical monitoring equipment. What how does how does that work and what kind of monitoring? Yes, we've got where our goal is to become the best geotechnical a monitoring solution sort of company uh, service provider. And um, we've got two main products. One is a system we call Cave Tracker, and the other one is called GeoForsight. Now, I'll go on to Cave Tracker first because I think the meat of this uh, conversation is GeoForsight. 
So Cave Tracker is um, essentially made up of two things. One is a, a beacon, which is, um, I don't know, it's by the length of your arm and in, it's a sort of, sort of a, a capsule and inside there um, is a magnet that spins. And we spin that magnet every once a day or every three days to, to conserve power. We install it a couple of kilometers in the ground. And what we're trying to do is measure cave flow. So we can measure uh, where the rock is going. And we actually retrieve these beacons once they come out of the, um, you know, the, the draw point. And so that's oh, primarily yeah. for, for cave block mining. Okay. Mm -hmm. uh, and I think there's maybe 20 to 30 cave block mines in the world. There's not many of them. They obviously take billions to uh, set up. Yeah. yeah. It's very difficult for them to know what's going on in the cave. And they're looking for things like uh, cave hangups and drilling and uh, with that system. So how that works is that the magnet spins and we've got a detector maybe 150, 200 meters away. And we can measure that it's spinning. And from that, with, with a magnetometer, we can work out uh, its distance from us. And if we do that with a few different um, detectors, then we can do something a bit like triangulation with mobile phones where you can work out where someone is. Um, we call it multilateration. Essentially, we can get a 3D position and we can track it. So every few days, we'll get a new data point. And over a couple of years, you get this nice uh, movement shown. And predominantly, it's used for minds to understand that they've gone from this was just solid rock when they installed it to uh, the cave back is propagating and they've now got flow. Uh, and then they can determine the height of draw and they can determine uh, muck flow speed. So they can then essentially, uh, this, well, all, all mining companies or uh, when you're mining, everything's done with rules of thumb. You know, not, not, ne not everyone necessarily understands um, everything and not everything is understood. Yeah. So there's a lot of yeah. lot of guessing that's gone on over the years, and I, and I think it's the same with tailings. I'm very I'm very much believe it is. There's certainly no consensus yet on many things. And um, with cave back with cave block mining, uh, there's rules of thumbs that you can only draw so many tons per day from a draw point, and, and so they right. have all these models. And the problem with I know these models are based on this fundamental theory. And this fundamental theory is often just just completely. You know, there's very it's like a good guess, but actually when it comes down to the measurements that we take, what we're doing is we're, we're changing the theory. So for instance, there was a hybrid uh, caving conference recently, and pretty much everyone presented something that they found out in caving, and pretty much everyone mentioned our name, Electron Mining. <laughs> and it's because of our systems that it allows them to change you know, the, the status quo. And they, what they're doing is they're, they make a model of the mine, they get measurements from us, and then they go and update the model so it meets up. You know, the real data points that we're giving it, it makes sure that it matches up to that. And they're refining the models. And so over a few, pretty much every mine has to do it for themselves. But over a few months or years, they can refine the models. And that gives businesses, um, you know, an industry advantage uh, when it comes to mining, you know, efficiency. They can draw more tons per day. Yeah, yeah. Hmm. That's yeah, the, that's, the case that sounds very system. useful. Sounds very useful. It's pretty cool, yeah. It's, yeah. Uh, there's nothing, nothing like it as well. It's heavily patented, of course. Mm -hmm. um, and, and that was made with uh, with partnership with, um, well, essentially UQ University. There's different spin outs, mining three, um, but it, you know, made in partnership with industry and, and um, you know, some of the bigger companies. And um, that all stemmed from the fact that previously we'd been working with um, another big. Uh, mining company 
to digitize um, what we, well, we call them smart markers. So they have these markers. So in cave back mining, they've got these markers there. I think they're about 30 something centimeters long. And essentially they used to be um, just big steel bars with someone welded a serial number into them and they'd install them around the mine. And when they find them later on, they can know where they come from. Mm-hmm. But they have to they have to pick them up with a magnet somewhere and they have to read them visually for the human. Um, so they're trying to understand the flow of the mine. So we invented um, smart markers, which is a sort of like a giant RFID tag. So in payback uh, mining, you sort of install a fan of, um, of explosives at the end of this drive. You install a fan um, of our markers. And as you blast it, you can see when you're recovering the, the ore, you can see which markers you're picking up in what order. And what we tend to find is that the markers you pick up goes way against theory. And so one, we're changing the theory of, um, you know, the height of the drive should be as short as possible and so on. And it, a lot of it's about trying to make sure that you don't have dilution coming from above um, or that you're not blasting, over blasting and so on. So what we find is that customers use this product to calibrate their, their blasting. So they, they change the spacing between the blasts and they change the sort of powder factor. Okay, okay. So that's yeah, where but... the GeForceSight system was born. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that, that was the, uh, we, we called it the sort of the net marker function. So that's, that's the sort of RFID. So you just, you just know where you've installed it and then you find it. And uh, one customer came along to us and said, you know what, that would be great for caving. And um, so as this cave propagates up, they'd say, wouldn't it be great if we could just have a breadcrumb of markers talking to them, talking to each other? We said, yeah, we can do that. That's fine. We can. So we've got these markers to talk to each other. So these little yellow markers. Mm-hmm. They they hop sort of, we install them sort of every two meters so that if one fails or disappears off, which is the whole point, yeah, a marker can jump and talk to the next next neighbor, you know, four meters away or something um, through rock. And um, so we just got them initially just to talk to each other. In, um, and as the cave back propagates up, when you can't talk to a marker, you know, the guy at the end, then you know that something's happened at the bottom and you, you basically, the cave consumes them. So that, to, that gives you a sort of spirit level of where the, um, the cave is uh, propagating up. Yeah and, yeah. and then what we did was then we thought, well, this is, this is quite good. So we, um, we can measure the radio strength between these markers. And basically if anything changes in the ground, so if the markers, when we install them, we, we take a calibration. And if anything changes, so one of them were to move or a few of them were to move, or um, you get some sudden change in fluid nearby, then we would see a change in how the radio signal strength is getting. It would get stronger or weaker. And we call that RSSI, which is radio uh, strength indicator. And what that's given customers is, oh, not only can we tell them where the markers are disappearing off the end of the line, but we can now tell you that something's going on there. And then we started getting into a bit of a different market. We could start using this for subsidence. Um, you know. <laughs> and then we thought, yeah. hey, um, this is good, but what's even better is if we could actually measure the tilt of every single marker. As you can see the evolution of where we're going. So we, yeah, yeah. then we bolted on inside the same marker housing, we bolted on a, a fairly accurate tilt sensor, mm-hmm. uh, which is 0.01 degree sort of movement. And we've got a more accurate version. Again, that's um, an order of magnitude more sensitive. 
and um, and pore pressure markers as well. We added a pore pressure piezo sensor. Hmm. Hmm. Okay. Yeah. So now we've got this sort of kick-ass multi-tool marker, yeah. and yeah. that can communicate wirelessly, and they can do lots of funny things. You can you can lay them when it gets a bit well. So one of the main things is you don't need wires, right? So when you've got um, geo technical hazards when things start going wrong that's exactly the time when you need measurements yeah and our systems continue to operate and if if some of them get destroyed or there's a big fault or a movement there's a good chance that our system can continue to talk wirelessly through the ground and you still get your data that's that's the key so we're finding that for instance when you've got a, a fault or you've got some potential subsidence or interaction between drives or an open pit or a cave and a, and a monitoring drive or something. We find that you can, with these tilt markers we've got, and with the pore pressure markers, you can you can you can see into the ground what's going on. Um, and because of our markers, because they're wireless, you can do all sorts of funny things where you can install them in one direction and then drill uh, another installation from a completely different side of the mine. Mm -hmm. um, and mm -hmm. you can have an an antenna at both ends. And so even if one side gets completely consumed, you can still get the signal from the other end. So you can imagine, for instance, if you had a tailings dam and you were to build up the first layer, you could lay them, the markers like potatoes across the tailing surface, um, horizontally and from front to back. And you could yeah. have antennas on either side of the tailings dam talking to these. And right. as you build it up, if one side was to fail or there was a technical issue, you've got this redundancy where you can say, well, actually, let's just talk to the the network system from the other side it's, um yeah so it's that it's the the, the ability to to capture tilted data and pore pressure and so we've got a bunch of systems that um allow you to wirelessly you know record the data and put it in a database uh, if you can't get at it you can you can get it offline so there's a little sd card you can go up and get that but we'll um, import that to our program and it, it puts it in a database so you can see all of your data since time began and it can visualize it. And there's lots of different visualizations we're showing. And we've got some great ideas only in the last week from some customers as to additional graphs and so on we should show. Um, yeah, so that's that's the system. Okay, that, that, that sounds really interesting to me because vibrating wire piezometers have wires and a lot of times they malfunction for reasons that are not explainable. There might be a lightning strike or something like that that can disrupt or destroy the wires. And so just to not have the wires is a huge step forward. And I, I think you're going to see a lot of people trying to migrate towards your equipment to avoid that kind of thing. But mm. I've got a question for you. How deeply can these be buried and you still can collect the data? Oh, there's, there's almost no limit, really. Um, so we, we've got some uh, installations that are 600 meters deep. Okay. So so we're, that's pretty big for tailings. Um, yeah, but yeah. This, this is all for, <laughs> this is in caving. So, we, yeah. you know, this system has mainly been proved in caving. Um, and some of those, you know, like two or three kilometers underground or something. So but they've got some pretty big holes. Um, typically for tailings, you know, we find they're sort of 50, uh, 100 meters deep. And, and for subsidence, you know, when we look at an open pit and if we're digging into the side of a, an open pit to try and monitor the interaction between two pits, um, so on, they, they tend to be sort of up to 300 meters. 
And so that that's um, what we tend to find is customers install a pore pressure marker, say every, um, you know, every 10 meters, maybe every 20 meters. Mm -hmm. So if, if there's any, if there's any great change in the, um, in the water table or moisture, they'll pick it up. What we're trying to show is, um, well, we're just trying to show change really. You know, we'd hope that people who've designed these, these installations, they, you know, they know on the day one when they install this stuff, what, how the system was, uh, how the, the tailings was, what the weather is, you know, what the rock type is and so on. It's more as the systems tend to age, as people stop monitoring, uh, and maybe personnel aren't on site anymore because the mines shut down. That's really when the system comes into play and you, you start to say, hey, there's a massive change in the, you know, the hydrology of the system. What's going on? Um, with our tilt markers, you can show that we can, we can have a fault um, say you've got 50 markers, say at marker 25, the ground starts going one way underneath and the top maybe is not moving. You start to get this rotation. So all of our top markers will start rotating, say clockwise, and the bottom markers will start to rotate anti-clockwise. Mm. No other system can do this because what we find with the, uh, you know, when you've got the, the tilt sensors in a hole, the vibrating light periodometers and so on, what they're trying to do hole profiling, they're essentially saying, they're trying to work out how is the top of the hole moved relative to the bottom. Yeah. But you can do you can do that with a prism, and it's a lot more reliable with a prism. Uh, right. Um, right. Much much easier to do it, much cheaper as well. Um, whereas with our markers, you're you're not showing it's not all linked in. It doesn't have that low pass filter that these big um, big systems have. If you can install it really well, everything is allowed to move independently. And so you get more of this, you know how modeling is more going towards sort of FE um you know, like mesh analysis. Yeah, right, right. You can you can use our markers in that sense, whereas you don't have this artificial constraint. It's that classic, when you're trying to measure something, you tend to ruin it. You know, I'm sure there's some technical word for that, but with our geoforsight markers, you get this independence between each sensor. That's one of the benefits. Yeah, yeah. so you're just comparing them to what we call inclinometers, and an inclinometer is a, Say a PVC tubing that's installed, drilled into a, a, a geologic unit, say a tailings dam, and it's embedded into the the uh, solid ground rock, ground uh, bedrock, say for example, below, and it's got a couple of different groove tracks in it that are at ninety degree angles, and you put a you slide an instrument up and down inside of that thing, and that's that's the actual inclinometer. Mm. And you might stop every meter to get a reading and then you bring it out and you take it at 90 degrees to that and you just mentioned that it's if you're looking to see the difference between the top and the bottom it's really accurate to put a prism on the top and a huge advantage of what you're talking about is i've seen some of these that were not embedded in something immovable at the bottom so the bottom is also moving and if you just look at the inclinometer, it doesn't look like it's moving all that much. But if you if you put a prism on the top and you say, well, this thing moved three meters, but your inclinometer says it only moved a meter. So it's obviously mm. moved two meters at the bottom that's not being recorded. Uh, so yeah, you, yeah, yeah, so your, your equipment can uh, overcome those kind of an issue and it can give you real-time readings right do you, do you try to tie these to alarms or um did, are they automated to spreadsheets to say hey this thing just moved you better see what's happening yeah so 
um, so yeah, our systems, they're absolutely, they, they move independently. You can, um, you can pole a hole, we call it polling a hole, uh, but you, you basically, you can set up a schedule to say, hey, talk to this hole once a day um, or once a few days and give me the data. And you, you can select what, what we're trying to do is conserve battery life. We want these to last for as long as possible uh, in this mine. In this uh, installation, yeah, yeah. So we, we tend to, but I, it sounds like you know once a day is pretty good for most people, mm -hmm. and yeah, um, yeah sure. you can set it up once a day, then you'll get an update, and you know it's taking every single marker will give you a value so depending on what you've installed. If you've installed ten pore pressure markers, you'll get all of those readings every day, and it goes into um, our database, and then the client can uh, load up their own. Uh, well, our application we call GeoHive. Or well, they can export the data into their other programs. A lot of people use things like Leapfrog, and there's tons of software out there for visualization of this type of stuff. Um, and customers tend to um, pay a service to us. So we, we we tend to well, we offer a service where we'll give you a weekly report to say, hey, this is what's going on uh, at your installation. We're certainly not saying that we're geomechanical experts. We're just saying mm -hmm. we're going to be yeah. the caretakers of your data, and we'll give you a call to tell you if you're being a bit negligent. You know, do you know what I mean? Yeah. Like you just need a, a push sometimes. Right. Um, and that, that varies from custom to custom. So we, we put in a service level agreement so we can call them up and say, hey, there's a problem. And a lot of mines have in, have um, created, uh, you know, what we call TARPs, trigger action response plans. And they've yep. created mm -hmm. them based off our systems. But it, there's still that manual element at the moment where they log into our system to have a look, what's the data today? Oh, it hasn't gone, you know, there's no red markers, there's no exclamation marks anywhere. Uh, everything's great. But it's really up to the mine sites to come up with their uh, limits for these trigger action response plans. And what we are actively looking is to try and work out exactly how to implement something or at least create the features so that you can log into our system and say, when, they, when it gets to this number, um, send me a text message. So that's that's the bit we're missing here. We're not quite sure exactly how to implement it, and we need the community's help for that. Yeah, for sure, for sure. And uh, how many mine sites has this kind of equipment been deployed to? Spe specifically, the uh, the movement and uh, you know, like a tailings type of installation. Yeah, I'm not I'm not sure. It must be around about the twenty or thirty mark. So okay. for the for the tailings. So we, we've only been. Um, selling or targeting this equipment for tailings. It's kind of been there for years, but uh, it's probably been about a year that we've had the pore pressure marker, which is pretty key um, yeah. sensor. Um, so, you know, you get, when with the pore pressure marker, you get tilt included, high precision tilt. So sort of two for one there. Um, yeah. And we're finding that we, we almost didn't realize that this market was there. Mm -hmm. um, so we've only very recently uh, started going that way. One of the benefits of our system is if you install it in a tailings, when you put a new layer on, you can just add them on top of each other and they'll continue to talk to the old system that was underneath. See, yeah, so, that, yeah, that's, you that's... All you do is you take the antenna at the top off, you know, there'll be a cabinet somewhere, you move that to the side, build it up over a few days, check it all back on. Or leave the antenna there underground and have two antennas, one every, you know, every time you do a raise. Oh, okay. Yeah. 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 Interesting. Interesting. So, so from the antenna, where does that data go? How does it get to a, a terminal box or computer yeah. or whatever it does? So we, we tend to have um, a cabinet or, you know, like a, 
a node uh, on on the somewhere on the tailings or on the side of a subsidence uh, line somewhere, and that cabinet can have uh, up to eight antennas talking to it, mm-hmm. and that, in theory you could have one antenna, and providing you put a bridge of markers between each hole, you can say to the antenna, talk to this hole, and then once you finish, talk to these markers that sort of breadcrumb across to the next hole. You could do it all in one. Um, so, so when, once you once the data gets into that cabinet, you can have uh, different connectivity options. So you've got the cellular, and we'll put a cellular modem in that works for your, you know, your area. So we're sort of techie nerds, and we make sure that you've got the the, the best cellular modem for your. <laughs> we've got, that. We've got um, some top of the range uh, Wi-Fi solutions, sort of point-to-point Wi-Fi yeah. bridges with ubiquity. And then worst case scenarios, you've got to go and get the memory card out of that every few weeks and so on and upload it. And we find a lot of customers underground use the memory card type solution when it's difficult to get a, a network uh, reliably uh, to a certain location. But we find that above ground, people pretty much always have cellular connectivity in, the, in a pit or in a tailor. Yeah, in- interesting. So the the antennas that you equip these with, is that a radio signal? Does it have to have line of sight with the box that it's transmitting to? Or how does, so the, how does that work? Yeah. So you tend to have, um, the cabinet can have almost as long as you want a, a cable, you know, hundreds of meters max sort of thing. Um, and then mm-hmm. the antenna on the end is, is quite a short piece of, um, essentially it's like a PVC tube. Uh, it, it takes us quite a long time to get this PVC tube to um, to be uh, very efficient, shall we say? So that there's a lot of time in the factory to get them perfect, each one of them. But we tend to bury this this antenna un- underground, you know, a meter or two. Okay. So that the, um, we try and have everything underground all the time. There's a lot of good reasons for that. It's just less likely to get damaged, uh, believe it or not, from uh, people, trucks, etc. Yeah, wildlife. Yeah. yeah, that's right. As soon as we put it above ground, there'll be some, I don't know, big bison or something coming across <laughs> and chew it. Yeah, you know, and, and for slope stability, you know, often our, um, you know, the slopes of monitoring are very remote. It might not be anyone there, so you get vandalism and so on. So we try and put everything underground where possible. So, yeah, so the antenna goes underground and it needs to be within a few meters of the first marker. Um, and it can, yeah, we often put a cable in the hole. Uh, we call it, it's not actually connected to any of our devices. Um, sort of a, just a coax cable, like no, no different from your TV. And we put it adjacent to the markers all the way down. What that allows us to do is multi-hop. So we can hop from, we might be able to talk to the bottom marker without talking to the rest of them. And that's that's just an extra redundancy thing we do. So it's still wireless. Everything can still move independently, um, but we can talk right to the bottom of the hole. Yeah, that's great. That's That's amazing. Well, Evan, that sounds really good. It's really intriguing. And I'm wondering if you could share any success stories with us to kind of illustrate how your your products have helped your clients. Yeah, absolutely. So in, in the last 15 years, you know, as the technology has evolved, we've had many successes. Um, some of the ones of high monetary value, I guess they tend to get a lot of press and attention. Um, so with the Cave Tracker system, uh, there was uh, essentially two caves that they wanted to um, propagate up and they wanted to catch what we call the pendant uh, in between the two caves. Uh, so you, ca- you can't have them next to each other. You couldn't put the caves um, directly next to each other. You've got to separate them. 
and you end up with this pendant. And they wanted to make sure that that pendant, which is where the highest gold content was being uh, captured. So we installed the cave track system in that. And uh, oh, it must have been two weeks before Christmas one year. And uh, it's, it's very, very, uh, very the big meeting was called. And we're in this boardroom full of wood paneling. And they said, you know, is, is it moving yet? So oh, we don't know. You know, it takes a few weeks for us to know whether it's moving and we've got to get a few readings you know this is brand new installation in your mind son. Yep. and uh, on christmas day we were doing um some uh, analysis one of our great engineers was um plugging away and he uh he gave him a call and said it's moved I i'm pretty sure it's moved 30 meters your cave has propagated 30 meters and that was, yeah. yeah so that that was the billion dollar question that they literally literally billions of dollars of gold uh you know, there is a success story. So, you, you know, when you're um, trying to develop a mine site, there's always a bit of a risk as in whether you're going to get it right. Um, so that's one of the, the probably the biggest monetary value ones that we did with the cave tracker system. And with the geoforce system, we've had um, really interesting stuff. So again, in the caving, we were we've installed systems quite. It's actually this is a live project at the moment, and they were caving into a big aquifer, and they knew that a lot of water was going to come through the mine. And there's a lot of pore pressure. Uh, there's a lot of pressure generally across the mine. And they, they used our pore pressure system to monitor what happened through, um, you know, through the rock wirelessly, you know, even with all of this um, cave propagating and all this rock movement. And over a period of weeks, they could see the pressure drop right off. And that, that, get, that was a real um, relief for them uh, to know yeah. that you know, a lot of the water had already been released. They'd already pumped it out. And now they're in a good spot. You know, so from a yeah. safety perspective, yeah. we've had customers where um, we've installed markers, uh, you know, be between monitoring drives, and um, we've we've called them out and say, hey, um, there's something really crazy going on. Like there's a big problem there. One of those drives is about to collapse. Like, and they'd say, oh no, you know, no, your system, you know, because at that point our system was perhaps the geoforce system, maybe on its younger days. And they say, oh, no, we don't believe you. There's no way. There's no way the cave has propagated that high. Mm -hmm. And we'd say, honestly, like, okay, we, we all know there's a bit of tolerance in measurements, but there's something definitely going on. Anyway, a few days later, the cave propagated and absolutely tore, tore this, this drive. And fortunately, no one, was, no one was there at the time, but it tore straight through it. And uh, yeah, it was one of the first times where our system had essentially been a very, very useful tool for safety. Yeah, no, it's impressive. That's pretty impressive. And uh, yeah, so it's, yeah, so, yeah there's a, it's, it's certainly useful. We, it's difficult to, you almost want to capture those disasters, of course. Um, yeah, from a, yeah. But, uh, yeah for, from a cave back mining perspective, there was a wonderful study done a couple of years back where um, this one chap, I, I, I'll, I'll remiss, misremember his name, so I, I won't say it, but he mm -hmm. basically proved th three or four of the main uh, K-back mining rules of thumbs. You know, th these sort of, well, this is how my granddad did it. That's how it is. Yeah. Um, yeah. You know, they had this concept that the, 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 the drive height made a big difference to efficiency. He said, well, that's, that's just complete nonsense. And he, you know, he did experiments over a year where he showed that, yeah, there's a maximum, there's a minimum, but the rules of thumbs for this particular mine are way off. What, what we had from that was the whole industry saw his work and went, that's amazing. We'll go off and use your new rules. But that, that, they missed the point. The point was that you need to use the system and do an experiment in your own uh, site to get your own understanding. Because every different rock mass and every different mine is different. And um, 
Yeah, they, they said that in that, that study alone, the system paid for itself uh, within one month due to the efficiency gains. And, and obviously the mine went on working for years and years and years. So that, that's another one of our biggest wins. Yeah, that's that's uh, that's pretty impressive. So, haven't we've covered a lot of uh, material today? And I think I think that uh, is wrapping it up pretty well. But did you have any key takeaways or pearls of wisdom you could leave us with? Yeah, I think um, you know, as many of our customers know, our, our systems aren't perfect. We're not aiming for perfect today. Uh, and I think with everyone, you know, for for everyone in life, we're just trying to. Make sure that today we're better than we were yesterday. That's that's my wisdom. There you go. There you go. I like I like that as well. Yeah, that's uh, a lot of lot of wisdom in you know baby steps. You don't have to create perfection on the first day. Baby steps are fine. Yeah. I just want to say, uh, Brian, well done for getting to this number of podcasts. I think. You haven't had the recognition perhaps in your other ones, but to get to, uh, I think you're on 67 or something nearing, like that. Yeah, yeah. That's, that's, that's a lot of commitment. So well done. I think the community appreciate it. Well, well thanks. I was just at a uh, event yesterday and there was quite a few people talking about my podcast, which is always encouraging. You know, I, I would do this without any listeners because I, I just do it for my own entertainment and my own education. But it's always nice to have some feedback and hear that people actually listen to it and and enjoy some of the content. Yeah, I mean, my main feedback is coming from, you know, because I'm a bit of an outsider to your industry. I've found listening back to all of your guest speakers, I think I'm I'm getting, I'm on about podcast 15. Um, okay. But I'm, le- I'm learning so much. And I'm oh, learning about how, how people get into it. You almost want to go to schools and say, hey, if any of your students are interested in getting into mining, they first have to listen to 20 of my podcasts because then they'll, <laughs> then they'll understand the industry. You know, it's a real insight for us outsiders. So I thank you for that. Oh, that's, that's really nice to hear some feedback. I appreciate that, Evan. Mm-hmm. And uh, with that, I, I think we'll wrap it up. I, you know, leave, leave it on a high note, I always say. <laughs> yeah, well, thanks very much. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, have a great day and hope to be in touch soon. Yeah, see you, Brian. All right, bye-bye. Well, that's it. I'm Brian, and this is Behind the Scenes with Brian. Until next time, keep on rocking.